0: This morning, we are going to study Matthew 18, verses 10 to 14. But I want to start this morning by, again, reading the the whole context, starting in verse 1. So Matthew 18, let's, let's read here, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we'll stop there for this morning. Well, I wanted to read that again because there's a remarkable flow of thought through this sermon. The disciples were arguing which one of them was the greatest, and then they asked Jesus the question in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus said that they would not even enter the kingdom unless they turned and became like little children, and he put a little child in the midst of them as an illustration of this. And the whole idea there, you remember, was that children in that culture were lowly and by default they were not in the running for this coveted place of the greatest. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The way to true greatness is to take the lowly place, to humble oneself, and so the disciples needed to stop vying for greatness and humble themselves. And then in verse 5, Jesus switched to consider one such child, one lowly believer. Such a one should be received in Jesus' name. The lowly disciple will receive another lowly disciple. And to receive there meant to welcome or to show hospitality, but to do so in Jesus' name meant to serve that disciple for Jesus' sake or for Jesus' glory. And we saw there the glorious truth that what we do for another disciple in Jesus' name, we do for Jesus Himself. Again in verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now the opposite of receiving one such child in Jesus' name was to lead them into sin. And we learned that word, the Greek word scandalon, to cause to sin, to tempt, to offend. And remember, scandalon was something that led one off the proper course of action or led one away from sound doctrine. And so we saw that it has to do with sin, either in in belief or in practice, in, in going off the proper course of God's ways. And we saw that it would be better to die than to do something or to not do something that would lead another believer into sinful actions or into unbiblical beliefs. Again, verse seven says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. There's this proclamation of woe there. And it's interesting that Jesus says there, woe to the world and not just woe to you. And the idea is, is that these kinds of temptations should not even come from other believers. We would expect it from the world, but not from one another. And with that warning against leading others into sin, we saw that we need to be those who fight against our own sin. We are those as believers who take radical action against our sinful tendencies, even cutting off our hands or our feet if necessary. Now, something that I, I don't think I brought out last week as clearly as I would have liked is the parallelism that, that's there between verses 5 and 6. And there's a, a kind of a double-edged parallelism there. To receive one such child in Jesus' name is the opposite of causing one of these little ones to sin. And we could see this in, in two directions. We're, we're either helping people by welcoming, welcoming them in, or we're driving them away down the path of sin. And so we have the way of righteousness or the path of wickedness. And that's one part of the parallel. On the other side, we either receive Jesus by receiving disciples in his name, or we reject Jesus when we lead these little ones into sin. And on the one side is the blessing of receiving Jesus. On the other side is the warning of eternal judgment. And so Jesus is concerned about the least of his people, and he's, he's so concerned about it that to lead one of them astray from following him is, is tantamount to rejecting him. And that's why we could say from our text last week that the true follower of Christ is one who fights against their own sin. And they do so not only for themselves, but also out of concern for their brothers and sisters In Christ not to mention above all for the glory of God we fight against our sin the true believer is in a lifelong battle against sin so that they are constantly cutting off causes to sin we are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and that was verses 8 and 9 cut it off and throw it away now we saw earlier in this chapter that that that, is the, that that this section is very much about our relationships, and I think I said something like this: so much of the Christian life, practically speaking, is about how we interact with one another. And I think if you think about it and you think through Scripture, so much of just practical Christian living involves interacting with one another. See, the disciples, they were arguing about which of them was the greatest, and an argument like that would involve envy and strife and jealousy. It's a, it's a quarrel. It's a fight. And Jesus said they needed to turn from that, repent, take the lowly position, minister to one another in his name. And so we see then that humility is crucial for these good relationships, See, as soon as we think that we deserve something from another person, we, we've lost our humility and instead of receiving them and, and serving them, we begin to make demands. You know, we start to think that that person owes me whatever, that I deserve blank from so-and-so. But humility puts the other person's interests above our own and seeks to bless them for the glory of God. Now, another word that summarizes what we've seen so far, and we saw that particularly last week, is the word influence. We're to be a godly influence on one another. We're to influence one another away from sin and towards obedience and conformity to Christ. Now, our text, verses 10 to 14, is intended to drive all of this home by showing us what heaven thinks of these little ones. See, God's thoughts should become our thoughts. God's view of these disciples of Christ, these little ones who believe in Jesus, God's thoughts about them should become our thoughts. God's view should become our view. And what we see is that, that God cares about them. And if God cares about them, then we should care. And the fact that God cares now has already been kind of stated indirectly in our text, in our section. See, there's a judgment for leading one astray. Again, it would be better to die, verse 6. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And so we've seen God's care indirectly because he's going to judge anyone that leads one of his little ones astray. But now God's care is going to be stated more directly, and it's going to be stated more positively now, the other thing that verses 10 to 14 is going to really add to, to what we've seen so far is this corporate emphasis. This corporate emphasis. Our care for one another is all of our responsibility. We're to keep one another accountable. We're to watch out for each other. If one of us strays, all of us are to take action. We care for one another corporately. We care for one another as a group. You see, it's not just my job as a pastor. It's really all of our job together to take responsibility when one of us strays. See, our text has us kind of change perspective again. And, and what we're going to see now is that we're going we're gonna to focus on this and we're, we're going to focus on the one who is strayed. Or we're going to focus on this one who has been caused to sin. Remember, it began with this view of ourselves individually. Each of us was to humble ourselves and become like a child in verses 1 to 4. And then we looked at another such child, and we considered how to treat one another. And we saw in verses 5 to 9 that we were to receive them and not to cause them to go astray. And now it seems that we're to think of one who has gone astray, and they've left the path, and they've they've left the sheepfold, and they're going astray. They're they're going off. They've they've scandalized. They're going off into some unbiblical practice, some sinful practice, or into some sinful belief or false teaching, and they're going off into sin of one form or another. And then the question comes: Well, what do we do? What do we do when another believer strays from Christ or strays into sin? What should we do as a, as a corporate body? What do we do? And the answer begins, as it so often does in Scripture, it begins with how we think. How we think. Before we do anything, God wants us to think about it rightly. And actually, there's a certain way that we're not to think if we look at our text. Look at verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. And with that, we're we're getting into our text for today. The introduction is done. I thought we needed to kind of see the flow a little bit again, but we're we're getting into our text now. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And again, it's about how we think or how we don't think about this little one who is beginning to stray. Now, Jesus starts there with this word, see, and it's literally the word, it's to see, it's to view, it's to perceive, it's to see something. But the idea here is to pay attention or watch out that this happens or watch out that this doesn't happen. See to it that such and such happens or doesn't happen. And so we have to have open eyes to make sure that this thing doesn't happen, that we do not despise one of these little ones. Jesus wants us on guard or be alert here, be alert, make sure this doesn't happen. And the reason that we need to see that this thing doesn't happen is that that it's something that can very easily happen. You see, when someone is going astray, the easiest thing to do is just to do nothing at all. The easiest thing to do is just leave it alone, let them alone, not worry about them, not care about them. And perhaps even easier than that, it's actually maybe even easier to kind of go one step further and actually positively despise this other person. To despise is to look down on someone, to think poorly of them, to have an aversion to that person, And the idea is to think of them, or to think little of them, or to view them with contempt. And Jesus says, see that you don't do that. Make sure that it doesn't happen. Make sure you don't view somebody in the body of Christ that way. And if we think about this from a natural perspective, or from a sinful human perspective, I think you'll agree that it's quite easy to fall into something, into this despising. You see, this little one has abandoned the good way. They've strayed from the proper course of action or belief and they're in sin. And to some extent, their sin is their own responsibility. And we get that, right? We, we understand it's, it's your fault if, if you've gone into sin. Nobody else can make you sin. That's your choice. And so it's their responsibility, perhaps someone's influenced them, but, but still we see that, that they have sinned and, and they're responsible, or when we sin, we are responsible. And so we see a disciple, another disciple, make a bad choice or make a, a whole series of bad choices, and they're off the good path and they're in some danger because of this sin. Now what does our natural prideful self say? Is there not a temptation to look down on such a one and say, well, you left the path. You chose this sin. You believed falsely. You acted foolishly. And in a sense, all of that is true. They are responsible for their sin. They have acted foolishly. And But we're responsible not to despise such a one. John MacArthur said, quote, Despise has the literal meaning of thinking down on. To despise someone is to look down on him as inferior and not worth consideration or care. End quote. Another commentator said, "To despise is the opposite of welcome." In verse five, it's the natural way of the world to despise little ones in the sense of not taking them seriously or giving their interests priority. End quote. And so do you see the, the pride that would despise in this way? Humility would say, you know, I myself could fall into this same sin. But pride looks down on such a one and seeks to raise itself up by putting the other person down. And so we're to see, to be on the alert, to, to guard ourselves that we do not despise one of these. And one of the ways that we would do that, as we're going to see more clearly as we go through here, is by failing to pursue one when they go astray. To despise is to think so little of them that we don't do anything when they stray. To despise is not to care enough to warn them of their danger. To despise is to write them off and say, serves them right for committing that sin, And because it's so easy to do, again, Jesus says, see that you do not do it. Now, there's lots of ways that we could despise another believer. But in the context, the way that Jesus seems to have in mind is despising of one who strays, and particularly by not caring enough to do anything about it, or not caring enough to seek them like the shepherd in verses 12 and 13. And what we're going to see then in our text is that the Lord gives us three reasons not to despise in verses 10 to 14. And so I the, the propositional statement here is three reasons not to despise another believer. Three reasons not to despise another believer. I'm going to give you them right now and then we'll work through them one by one. And I left the headings a little bit vague because each of these is it needs a little bit of thinking, needs a little bit of work for us to see what Jesus is saying. And so I kind of left them a bit obscure. Uh, number one, we're going to see the, the first reason not to despise another believer is because of the angels in the rest of verse 10. Then we're going to see uh, number two, because of the shepherds in verses 12 and 13. And then the third reason not to despise another believer in verse 14, because of the father. Now, you probably won't get those yet, but I trust that as we go through, you're going to kind of see what's happening here. And the first reason not to despise another believer is because of the angels in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you in, that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Now, the second part of verse 10 is a little bit tricky. The little ones have angels, and those angels are in heaven, and these angels always see the face of my father, the face of Jesus' father in heaven. Now angels are heavenly beings created by God, but we don't know much about them, but we do know that they serve God in various ways. And we know that angels are powerful, we know that they're intelligent, but we don't know a whole lot about them. Now that these angels would be in heaven is really not surprising. Angels minister on earth at times, but their home seems to be in heaven. Now that these angels always see the face of the father is maybe somewhat surprising to us because apparently not all angels have that privilege. Maybe you remember the seraphim in Luke, or in Luke, in Isaiah chapter 6, the burning ones, the seraphim, there they seem to be some kind of an angel And remember, they covered their face as they called out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. But the angels in our verse, they have the privilege, the the honor of seeing God's face in heaven, which is actually a high honor. These are exalted angels. We could think about them that way. Now, the difficulty here is actually with the word there. Their angels. You see it there in verse 11 or in verse 10, for I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. Now, this has led some to believe that each little one has their own angel. And this is where, or at least this is the only place in scripture where you can get this idea of a guardian angel. Now, the place that it really comes from is, is more from, from other um, kind of post New Testament Jewish writings. Uh, But this is the only place in scripture that would come close to presenting an idea of a guardian angel. Now, it's possible that each Christian has a guardian angel or an angel, their angel, and that no other passage teaches it. That's possible. God only needs to say something once for it to be true. Now, the other way to take best, or the other way to take the, the other best way to take the word there is to take it in in a way they call collectively, which means that the word there looks at, at all the little ones as a group so that there's angels that watch over the whole group of believers. And I, I lean towards this second view But sometimes, not, not, you, you know, if scripture reveals something, we need to believe it, but, but sometimes it's just okay to say, like, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's guardian angels or, or what exactly, if, if there's, if there's angels that watch over the whole group of believers, I, I don't know, and sometimes that's okay. Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about angels, and this is the only verse like this where we see that they're angels. Now, their angels, again, could mean that each little one has a guardian angel, or it could mean that there are angels that watch over the whole class or the whole group of little ones. But however we understand this, there's a, a few things I think we need to keep in mind here. Number one, there are angels and demons. They exist, and they are supernatural beings in the heavenly places, and they do stuff behind the scenes. They're usually unseen. They're usually not visible to us, but sometimes they appear, and we should not underestimate these powerful beings, angels, and demons. On the other hand, we shouldn't overestimate angels or demons either. They don't compare to God. They don't compare to Christ, and Christ promises to be with believers. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, and even if we did have a guardian angel, they would not compare at all with the power of Christ in us. And so we don't want to overestimate angels or demons. Number three, however we understand the details of, of this section, the main idea is, is very clear, I think. These angels who somehow help Christians, even the lowliest, straying Christians, they have access to God's face. And that's the the main idea here, and and we'll we'll get to the importance of this, but first I want you to turn to Hebrews um, chapter 1. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. All right, Hebrews chapter 1. Now in the first section of Hebrews chapter 1, after verses 1 to 4, which is kind of the introduction... The author's point, first of all in the book, is that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels. And there's a contrast between the Son of God and the angels. Just look at verse 4. Are they, and it's speaking about angels, are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so angels somehow serve those who inherit salvation. Now, I, I think that that's, that's cool. And, you know, colloquial, that's cool. I think it's encouraging to think that, that somehow angels minister and serve the people who are going to inherit salvation. If you're a Christian, you're going to inherit salvation. Angels somehow serve you. But even as you remember that, remember that God also is with you, and he is far more powerful than angels. But the point here is that if angels are ministering spirits sent to serve believers and they behold the face of God, then the ones who serve these little ones, they have access to the highest court in heaven. And if their servants, if the little ones servants behold the face of God, then who are we to despise those little ones? You see that? You see that? See what's happening there. Who are we? Who do do you think you are that you're going to despise them when these angels would not despise them? They would serve them. And when you think about it, you wouldn't despise that angel, right? If if you saw the angel who stands in God's presence, that angel would terrify you. That angel would frighten you. Would you would recognize the power and the greatness of that angel. But that angel serves this little one that you would despise. And so the angel is great, and so we would esteem it. And if we saw it, that mighty angel fights on behalf of Jesus' disciples. Therefore, we should not despise one of these disciples. Do not despise another believer. The angels don't. Angels would serve them. Angels would serve them. Who do you think you are if you're going to despise them? That is the idea here. The angels would, would serve them. Who do we think we are in our pride? Now, verse 11 is, is not in the earliest manuscripts. It seems to have been added from Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And if we ever preach through Luke, we'll look at it there. Now, the second reason not to despise another believer is number two, do not despise another believer because of the shepherds in verses 12 and 13. Let's go back to Matthew 18. Look at verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now this is something like a parable or at least it's an illustration. What do you think invites us to kind of think about this whole situation? Let's think about this. What do you think? What do you you guys think about this? And here's the situation. And here's where it becomes clear that Jesus is, is talking about one of these little ones who has gone astray. And again, it's a scandal on, it's into some sin or into some false teaching. They're like a sheep that has gone astray. And Jesus invites us to think about a shepherd. Now, shepherds watch over flocks of sheep. And in the ancient Near East, the shepherd wouldn't normally own the sheep, but they would be his responsibility. And a hundred sheep was a fairly large flock. And there would have been multiple shepherds to care for that many sheep. Now, sheep are notorious for going astray. They wander off. They leave the safety of the, of the herd and the protection of the shepherd. It's just kind of what sheep do. And when they get off alone, they aren't able to find their way back. They're not like, like the dog in the story that can kind of find its way back or whatever. I forget the name of the story, but you probably, it's probably a hundred stories like that. But sheep for whatever reason God did not give them the wisdom to be able to make their way back they get off and they are lost and they get stuck in ravines and they get stuck in shrubs or they walk off cliffs and they're vulnerable to predators and the shepherd's job was to protect the sheep and a good shepherd would go after a sheep that strayed that was just common practice that's just that's just what you do in Luke 15 and verse 4, Jesus tells a similar parable of a man with a hundred sheep and he loses one. And the way that Jesus asked the question there in Luke 15, verse 4, it very strongly shows that the expected response for anyone is to pursue the lost sheep until it's found. That's just what shepherds that's just what shepherds do. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about a hired hand who's not the shepherd. And this person leaves the sheep when the wolves come. This is Luke, or this is John 10, 13. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But a shepherd would go in search of a straying sheep. Now perhaps this reminds you, or at least it reminds me of David, the young shepherd. Before he killed Goliath, he said to Saul in 1 Samuel 17, 34 to 36. David said to Saul, your servant used to go, to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear uh, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And that's just the attitude of a shepherd. A lion or a bear or any danger to the sheep, they're going to go. That's their job. They're going to take care and find this sheep. And so again, in our text, verse 12, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And the answer is just, yes, he does. That's just the answer in the ancient Near East. Now, this leaving the 99, it used to kind of bother me. But what we have to remember here is that it's talking about standard shepherding among human shepherds. And also, it's a parable. And so it's not meant we're not meant to map every part of this to reality. For example, God does not leave us when He goes after one who, who's gone astray. And again, a shepherd with a hundred sheep would not be working alone. There would have been other shepherds with the 99. But again, standard, ancient, near-eastern shepherding meant searching for stray sheep. And there was a special joy in finding a lost one alive. You know, often when they strayed, they would be injured or killed. Well, verse 13 says, and if he finds it, and there was no guarantee, there there was no guarantee that, that a stray would be found alive. And so if he finds it, Truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. And once again, we should remind ourselves that this is a parable, and it's talking about a human shepherd. And there's a joy, a special joy, in finding the wandering sheep. It's just kind of human nature to take the ninety-nine for granted. But we rejoice in the saving of the one that we we thought could have been lost. And, And so it's just generally true that there's a special joy in bringing one back that was going astray. Well, we have to ask ourselves now, what is the point of this parable? What is the point of this whole thing? Well, twice we have mention of the one that went astray. Or in verse 13, the 99 that did not go astray. And to go astray means to wander off or to go off from a specific way or action. And it fits perfectly with what we learned last week about scandal on to cause to sin. So that what we're thinking of here is we're thinking of what is the right action when a brother or sister goes off into some sin or off into some false teaching or belief. And what Jesus does here for us is he presents two choices. One is despise them. We're not to do that. And to despise them would be to reproach them. Or to ignore them or to leave them to their fate like a hired hand who cares nothing for the sheep. The other choice is the picture of a shepherd who cares. And he goes in search of a wandering disciple in an effort to win them back. And if he succeeds, he rejoices. Why? Because he cares. Because he loves the sheep. Because he receives the little ones, Jesus' disciples. Now, I probably don't need to tell you this, but pastor comes from the Latin. Here's my Latin, pastor. Um, do you like that? Pretty good Latin, pastor. That's the only Latin I know, uh, which means to shepherd, to shepherd. So pastor is a shepherd and the pastor or pastors are to be like the shepherd in our parable and their responsibility is to shepherd the flock in the way that shepherds would. First Peter five, one and two, I exhort the elders among you, Peter says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. What does he exhort us to do? Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain but eagerly again shepherd the flock you elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you elders are shepherds who protect the sheep from wolves who are false teachers that would lead the the sheep into error and into sin elders are shepherds that are called to protect the sheep now let me speak freely about this for a moment brothers and sisters you want a shepherd, you want a pastor who cares enough to come after you if you ever stray or if you ever seem to stray. It's the nature of us as sheep to, to go astray. All of us like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah 53 verse 6. And we need people in our lives who care enough to rebuke and reprove and correct and exhort us. And, and really, that's how the Word of God functions in our lives. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, he said, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. And here's what he's to do as he preaches the Word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, sometimes sound teaching needs to be endured because it's not comfortable to be rebuked or reproved or exhorted, even if it's done with complete patience, And teaching. But listen, it is better being rebuked, being exhorted, being challenged to follow the word of God. It's better than turning away from the truth and wandering off into myths or wandering away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need one another to encourage us and motivate us and challenge us to keep following Christ and to live our lives for his sake in this world. And I say one another here because it's not just the pastor's job. What Jesus says here, he says really to the whole church. To put it in the words of, of Cain, but opposite, we are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. And we should welcome those who care about us enough to correct us and warn us. And we should care about one another enough to search for them when they seem to go astray. And if we don't do this, we are despising one another. Now, if your so-called shepherds don't do this, they are despising you. But let me say this as well. There's another side to this, and I, I think it happens all too often. When a little one can be despised for going after another brother and sister who seems to go astray. See, when somebody warns another believer of the spiritual danger they're in, it's easy for the one being warned to be offended, to reject the warning, to despise the one who cared enough to try to help them. And in reality, we should be thankful for somebody like that in our life. Proverbs 27, verse 6 from the Legacy Standard Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. People who love us tell us the truth, even if it hurts. And we should be the wise man who receives correction. Proverbs 9, 8, and 9 says this, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. And so there's a place where we do not reprove a scoffer, but on the other hand, reprove the uh, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Reprove a scoffer and he will hate you. He might come to despise you. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 5 says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Better to hear the rebuke of the wise. And we want to be that kind of church. We want to be the kind of church that shepherds one another, that cares for one another. We want to be the kind of church that is humble enough to recognize that we're all learning and growing, that we're all in various places of spiritual maturity and that we're all fighting our sin. And that humility should make us gentle and patient and gracious with one another But we also want to care enough to be like the shepherd in the parable who goes after those among us who go astray. Now, in the practical outworking of this, as we think about how do we do this practically, we need to be wise. I would say we need to be, we need to be very wise because, again, as scripture says, there's a a kind of person that we're not to rebuke. Proverbs 9, 8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And so there's a kind of person we're not to rebuke. Now, Matthew chapter 7, I think, is very, very helpful on this. And so I want you to turn back there. Matthew 7. This whole section, verses 1 to 6, very, very helpful, I think. Uh, we are not to be one another's judges. Our goal is to positively help one another to observe everything that Jesus commanded us. And and so we see that in verses 1 to 3 with this do not judge. But we do need to deal then with our own sin before we can help somebody else. And that's what this whole section is about, is is about helping people, helping one another live out the Sermon on the Mount in the context. And so helping one another observe everything that jesus commanded us if we want to take it to the whole great commission but we need to to deal with our own sin before we're going to be able to help somebody else and so in verse four it says how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye you hypocrite first take the log out of your own eye but we do have to help our brother with his sin and and with a, a humility that says it, it, it's it's only you know I just only got this log out of my own eye, but but let me let me do I'm gonna do whatever I can do to help you get that speck out of your eye. And so there's to be a great humility in doing this. But then verse five it says and then once we've kind of dealt with our own sin and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But then immediately after that, Jesus warned us in a graphic image that there's a type of person that we're not to try to help because they don't want our help and we're to leave them alone. Verse six, do not give what is holy to the, and do not, sorry, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And so we have to be wise and discerning in this. But if we err on one side or the other, I think we need to err on the side of, of taking people at their word when they say that they want to follow Christ and being like good shepherds who try to rescue those who stray. If, if we're going to err on one side or the other, I think it's better not to just judge everyone as dogs right? It's better to, to go and, and talk to them and say, hey, hey, brother, hey, sister, it looks like you're going astray here. It looks like there's some sin in your life. I think there's a speck in your eye. Let me, you know, can I help you with that? You know, for myself, I'm committed to do that for you as your pastor, and, I, and, and honestly, I want you to do the same for me. If you see me straying, if you see me going off the path, I want you to come and talk to me about my sin because I want to follow Jesus Christ with my life. And so we should not despise one another because of the shepherds. The Lord is our shepherds, and He serves as the perfect example of this. And, and we need to keep going here. So let's go now and let's look number three. We should not despise another believer because of the Father. We should not despise another believer because of the Father. Verse 14. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The word so connects verse 14 back to the shepherds from verses 12 and 13. And what we get from that is that the Father is the shepherd. And like the shepherd in the parable, so the Father does not will one of his sheep to perish. Now I want you to turn with me to the gospel of John chapter six, because I think it's important for us to just recognize here that none of the father's sheep will perish. none of the father's sheep will perish. Look at John chapter six and verse, starting at verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so all of those given to Jesus by his Father, they will be raised up on the last day. Look at the next verse, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so there's this promise here that all of the sheep, all of those that that are given by the Father to the Son are going to be raised up on the last day, and they're going to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, and they will never perish. If we go over to John chapter 10, we see that Jesus is the good shepherd. And he watches over these people whom his father gave him. Look at verse 3, a little ways down verse 3 of John 10. The sheep hear his voice, and the, the his there is the shepherd's voice. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jump down to verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I'll pause there for one second. If they were among the sheep, they would hear His voice and they would follow Him and they would become disciples and they would believe, but they are—they don't believe because they're not His sheep. Verse 27, My sheep hear My voice and I know them and they follow Me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now let's go back to to our verse here. That was just to show that Jesus' sheep, the Father's sheep, these, these people that are given from the Father to the Son will never perish. But Jesus says there, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so the ultimate will of both Jesus and the Father is that all of those who have been chosen before the foundation of the world and given by the Father to the Son, they will believe, they will receive eternal life, and they will never perish. And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, you are among that number and you will never perish. But if you go astray, the Good Shepherd will pursue you. Likely he'll do that through a fellow brother or sister in Christ, or maybe by some form of his God's fatherly discipline so that you will repent and return and you will never perish. The father has set his love on you. He has foreknown you from the foundation of the world. He has given you to his son and the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1:11) will ensure that his will and your salvation never fails. You see, God's ultimate sovereign decreed of will can never fail. But on this side of eternity, we don't know God's will in that sense. We don't know His ultimate sovereign decreed of will. And some people are going to perish. Some people are going to end up in hell. Some are going to say, Lord, Lord, and not enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 7.21. But still, God's will is that everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. God's will is for believers to do the will of the Father in heaven. God's will in this sense is is what we call His revealed will, or His will of command, or His prescriptive will. So we know then that God does not will, God does not desire a little one to perish. And when a professing believer goes astray, we won't know if we're dealing with a genuine believer or if we're dealing with a false professor of religion, but we do know regardless that in one way or another, God's will is for them to come back to the narrow way. It's either God's will in the sense that ultimately it will be accomplished, which is a a great encouragement to us, right? We could think about Paul uh, telling Timothy in 2nd 2 Timothy 2.24 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then there's this, this hope that, that Paul gives to Timothy as he's, as he's doing this with people that are in opposition to his ministry. God may grant them, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so it could be that, that God's will is, is in this sense that he is going to grant these people repentance. And they're going to turn and they're going to come to their senses and they're going to be delivered from Satan. And then we're going to have the joy of the shepherd in verse 13. But if it's not God's will in that sense then it is at the very least God's will in the sense that it is what He commands the straying believer to do. And God may not in that case grant them repentance, but repentance is still what He justly demands. Now, if you were able to track with with some of that, you're going to see then that there's a difference between what God wills in the sense of what He Himself will do and what God's wills in the sense of what He desires Men to do. His will in the ultimate sense is what he himself will do and will accomplish. He will grant repentance in the one case. His will in the other sense is that he commands it and he pleads with it and he doesn't desire for you to perish, but he's not going to accomplish it. And in a sense, he's going to leave you to your own way. But regardless, we can be encouraged that in one way or another, it is God's will to bring this straying person to repentance. Now, if you weren't quite able to track with that last bit, and I, I admit that even in sometimes I don't fully track with all of what I'm saying and something like that. It's a lot of deep theology there. But if you weren't able to quite track with that last bit, just know this, in, in one way or another, God does not will even one of these little ones to perish, and therefore when they go astray, we should pursue them. And anything less is, is again, to despise them. And so we've seen three reasons not to despise another believer because of the angels, because of the shepherds, and because of the Father. And when we take it all together, taken together, we see the Father's love for each and every believer. And He doesn't want them to perish. And He is the shepherd who seeks the one who goes astray. And His closest angels, He sends them to minister to that lowest one. And so God loves his people, and therefore we should love them too. And if God loves us in this way, we should not despise even the most wayward among us. Instead, we should seek to bring them back to righteousness in Jesus' name. We're going to sing now about the Father's love for us. We're going to sing how deep the Father's love for us. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for this passage. We thank you that that you care for the us worms. And it's it's really remarkable, Father, that you would love us when we were such sinners. And yet we recognize your love for us and we recognize then that if you love us this way, you love all of us this way. And you ask us to love one another this way and not to despise one another and to pursue one another that we might all walk close with Christ and we pray that you would help us to do that. Help us to do it in the wisdom that we saw in Your Word, Lord, to, to know when to pursue and, and when to to leave it off. Father, it takes great wisdom, but You have told us that if any of us lacks wisdom, You will give it to us. And so we, we thank You for that, Father. And we pray that You would, would grow us in this way as this corporate body that cares for one another, that keeps one another accountable, that keeps one another encouraged and motivated and challenged to live our lives for you and for eternity. That we might have the fullness of joy when we see you on that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.